All of these programs really should be focused at addressing an incredibly important problem in California, which is the raising gap between the rich and the poor and poverty in California, which has increased dramatically in the last decade. If we can't link poverty reduction and climate adaptation and mitigation, then I think we're going to have some real real problems implementing a policy in this state because the very political driver that Jonathan was talking about that divides us on advancing climate policy is this idea that doing something to help ourselves costs too much money. Well, we have to turn that into the point that doing something to help ourselves creates jobs and helps people lift themselves out of poverty. And that would be the way to really build a coalition um, to support climate adaptation. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Bernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable and more equitable communities. This is the third episode in a four-part series on climate adaptation. This is your host, Mike Hancox, with our guest co-host, Kate Meese, the Executive Director of the Local Government Commission, and our guest, Jonathan Parfrey, the Executive Director and Founder of Climate Resolve, and Steve Frisch, the President of Sierra Business Council. Today, the conversation shifts to the economics of climate change. At the end of episode number two, I was just about to ask Jonathan a question about the state of Maryland. Jonathan, this is this is Mike Hancox. I'm wondering to the degree to which you think you mentioned this dynamic in Maryland where people care less about the roads that they've lost than about the about the Oriole. And I'm wondering the degree to which the fact that the worst climate impacts are being felt by the most marginalized communities at the moment is is actually playing into that dynamic. So is there a is there a power dynamic where the folks who care about the Oriole are not so impacted by some of these climate impacts yet. I mean, you talked about the difference between, you know, the weather and climate, and I, I agree with you. So we're seeing on the Gulf Coast now, you know, the people are being hammered by the weather on, a, on almost a yearly basis, and they're starting to care more. So I'm just wondering how much that dynamic in Maryland you think is, because the worst impacts are, are being felt by people who are not as politically powerful. Los Angeles is a county of about 10 million people, and and a recent study found that over 50% of the population was at moderate or high vulnerability to climate impacts. So in this one county, that's over 5 million people that are at risk to climate impacts. And the vast majority of those people uh, come from uh, disadvantaged communities, our, our low-income communities. And so there is a real concern that we have that the disadvantaged communities are not 
necessarily receiving the uh, amount of investment and amount of attention from the state legislators to really be prepared for the impacts that are anticipated and are coming. Uh, let me just give a small example. So in Southern California, we've had this wonderful ocean-influenced climate for many years, and so it's much cooler than other parts of the interior in California. And yet, because of the slow rise in temperatures in our region, we are seeing uh, areas even along the coast that have become very, very warm. And people did not used to have uh, air conditioning. They wouldn't need to have air conditioning, or if they had an air conditioning unit and they were low-income people, they you know, for reasons to, they want to be able to pay their utility bill, they would not use their air conditioner for a day or two or three or four. And and now we're seeing these sharp peaks in energy use that the, the loads have become higher and higher. And more and more of people's income is going towards their utility bills because they're having to cool down or keep their refrigerator running, which is keeping their food safe. So there are some real impacts to to vulnerable populations. And these same vulnerable populations are simply not getting the resources that they that they need. Which I think we should talk about when we talk about financing. That's going to be a really important piece of all this and who's going to pay for this for these resilience efforts. Absolutely. And Steve, I want to turn it to you because I know that the Sierra Nevada region experiences unique equity issues that often go unrecognized because a lot of the focus, at least in California, has really been on pollution exposure and urban poverty. And clearly, you in the Sierra Nevada region, you have a lot of socioeconomic challenges that are not always at the the top of the list in terms of the equity battles we're trying to fight. So I'd love to hear what you're seeing in the Sierra Nevada region and how you're looking at uh, bringing the vulnerable populations into addressing climate change resilience moving forward. Yeah, this is a really tough issue for us in the Sierra Nevada. And I, I just have to say, I think Jonathan's observation that we need to look at, at what the equity around funding is at the same time that we're talking about program development and how we're delivering services is really important. But the rural regions of the state, and I would say not just the Sierra Nevada, but the North Coast, portions of the Central Valley, the Inland Empire, even areas in the Central Coast face some really unique challenges. They have low population density, so they have a tendency to have less services, including medical services. Rural hospitals in California have taken an incredible hit in the last decade, and many rural hospitals have closed, so the healthcare centers aren't necessarily there. There's more social isolation today than there was 30 or 40 years ago. If you look at sociologists that study this issue, people are significantly less connected to their neighbors or through social organizations. And there's more isolation in these rural communities. In the Sierra Nevada region, and I'm not necessarily speaking now of all the rest of the rural the average median income of residents is, depending upon what county you're in, roughly 60 to 80 percent of the statewide average median income, but the costs are not commensurate with the 
the the income. So really the disparity is kind of wider in many of these rural communities. The poverty looks different. The tendency in rural communities is that your poverty is elder poverty rather than childhood poverty, although childhood poverty is high in many rural communities. Rural communities are more dependent upon transfer payments than they are earned incomes. So they're on many more people on fixed incomes. And when we look at how we're delivering these services and the equity of the distribution of funding in order to provide benefit, you know, we recently did an assessment of the Sierra Nevada region in a region with 25% of the state's land area delivers 65% of the developed water supply, has 9% of the population received 2% of the funding through California climate mitigation programs. Granted, that's the beginning of a process that we're in to figure out how to distribute funding in order to address these issues. But I do think that we need a more focused look at what constitutes a disadvantaged community or a disadvantaged person in California. And we need to think about about how we come up with a better way to take regional and geographic and different disparities into consideration. One last observation on this, I think the tools that we've used to manage identification of disadvantaged communities for climate mitigation, which really are more, the climate mitigation programs are more focused at reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Although those may have been appropriately looking at toxic exposure as a significant set of indicators to drive the identification of disadvantaged communities, when we're talking about adaptation, that actually isn't really an appropriate measuring tool. There, we, we need to look at whether or not we're using the right tools to measure disadvantage. With that said, all of these programs really should be focused at addressing an incredibly important problem in California, which is the raising gap between the rich and the poor and poverty in California, which has increased dramatically in the last decade. If we can't link poverty reduction and climate adaptation and mitigation, then I think we're going to have some real real problems implementing a policy in this state because the very political driver that Jonathan was talking about that divides us on advancing climate policy is this idea that doing something to help ourselves costs too much money. Well, we have to turn that into the point that doing something to help ourselves creates jobs and helps people lift themselves out of poverty. And that would be the way to really build a coalition um, to support climate adaptation. Great. Well, you guys have both touched on some important issues around funding and financing these measures and doing so in a way that creates jobs and hopefully closes the gap um, in terms of wages and income. I want to drill in on that a little more and see if either of you have have been able to utilize funding in a way that that meets those multiple needs. Um, thinking particularly, Steve, about some of the work that you guys have have been embarking on to decrease energy use and increase renewable energy. Jonathan, some of the cool roofs efforts, ways that you can can address resiliency at the local and community level, but also address the bottom line for individual homeowners and business owners. Sure, Kate. This is Steve. I'll start. I think 
one of the seminal programs we've been implementing has been a direct install energy efficiency program where we work predominantly with commercial, nonprofit, and municipal entities, but there are other programs very similar working on low-income housing and moderate-income housing. And the program is designed really to directly install energy efficiency measures in those buildings and structures. We've done more than 3,500 building retrofits in the Sierra Nevadas, saving more than 26 million kilowatt hours a year of electricity, saving ratepayers about 7 or $8 million a year in electricity rates. And we can directly measure benefits from each one of those projects. You know, the, the typical project pays for itself in less than a year. And then by kind of linking those programs to other opportunities for renewable energy, like um, property-assessed clean energy programs that are in place in many parts of the state of California, you really have the ability to start to measure the benefit and directly demonstrate to, for example, local governments, like your constituency at the local government commission and and individual businesses and and homeowners what the direct benefit is. This issue of of creating real metrics, but also not being a slave to the metrics in the sense of having to respond to the metric. Like the reality is the purpose of a measurement tool is to make is is to guide decision making, right? Um, so so being able to kind of create metrics, figure out how to measure benefit and continuously improve that system, I think, is absolutely critical. That proves to both ratepayers who are paying for some of these policies on their bills and citizens in California who might be paying for some of the costs of mitigating and adapting to climate change that their money is being is being stewarded properly and is being measured for its benefit and that it's providing more benefit than the initial investment, which we could prove a dozen times over on the programs that we've been implementing. And on the subject of cool roofs, you know, our organization was trying to find that sweet spot where we were working to, to help the, the region be more resilient to climate impacts, but there was also a benefit in terms of uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And because Southern California utilities are, are still uh, based in in using a lot of fossil fuel for the generation of electricity by having a, a robust energy efficiency program through cool roofs, which reduces uh, utility uh, bills by about uh, 10 to 15%. And it also, of course, then have, would have a benefit in terms of the customer's uh, utility bills also would reduce their, their payments. So uh, about three years ago, uh, our organization working with the Department of Building and Safety in, in, in L.A. and also working with uh, L.A. Department of Water and Power, we were able to push across a, a suite of policies on, on coal roofs. One of them was an incentive from the electric utility that would provide an, an incentive for uh, to offset the re-roofing of, of a home. And so and it depends on the slope of the roof. It depends on the materials that are being used. But for 90% of the re 
roofing activities in the city, there would be uh, some kind of an incentive that would offset any incremental costs over a traditional uh, roofing material, shingle roofing material that would be used. But then we also were able to push through changes in the building code. And so all new roofs and all uh, refurbished rooftops would have to use a high albedo uh, reflective material in Los Angeles. And so the good news is, over the course of these three years, because LA is so big, there's been a, a, a change. There's over 10,000 roofs in the city of LA that have a switch to cool roofing material. And it's now within the roofing uh, trade that they've become accustomed to now using these higher albedo materials. And so there's been corresponding savings in energy use and uh, savings that have gone back into the, the customer's pocket. And the thing that's great about this is that it, it's both, again, a, a mitigation measure of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but it also serves that added purpose of uh, keeping a home uh, cooler just naturally, uh, just by means of the materials on the roof. So we've been very pleased with this program, and the city of Pasadena saw what we did in Los Angeles, and, and they adopted it and pretty much wholesale. And our goal is to expand this to uh, certain climate zones with, within the region. We don't know if it's needed in South Lake Tahoe, Steve. So uh, I don't know if you need cool roofs up there. You might actually need black roofs. But uh, for the rest of the state, uh, we definitely want to expand this program so it'll help people be able to weather hotter temperatures and provide that uh, savings in terms of their utility bills. Unfortunately, we're running out of time today. So, Kate, let's pick the conversation up next week at this point and start to talk about the cap-and-trade program in California and where climate adaptation goes from here. Thank you all for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next week for the final episode in this important conversation about climate adaptation here on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.